Mm. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week we meet the biologists who are inventing a new form of genetic information. This is the field called xenobiology, and they've got very high hopes for it. Plus, a breakthrough in the treatment of cancer, the video game that tackles fake news, and scientists make progress in Parkinson's. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We kick off this week with a breakthrough in the treatment of cancer. Scientists in London have discovered how to grow miniature copies of a patient's cancer. These are so-called organoids in a laboratory dish. These mini-cancers can then be used to screen over 50 different cancer drugs to find very quickly the combinations of treatments that either will or won't work for that person. Study author Nicola Valeri is at the Royal Marsden. The key issue we have when we uh, face new drugs and new trials for patients is that we need to enroll a number of patients in clinical trials. And and then many years later, we find out if the drug works or not. So one of the key issues we face in personalized medicine is to find the right drug for, for the patient in order to avoid toxicities to other patients that are unlikely to benefit from it. Is it not also true that everyone is an individual and therefore just because a drug works in a population of patients, if you look at the individual, it may not work for them? That's exactly the problem. That's exactly what we face in the clinic. Even though you have positive data from clinical trials, sometimes the drug works, some other times it doesn't. And that's what we are trying to address. Because at the moment, say someone is enrolled into a course of treatment with an anti-cancer drug, we only find out months later in that person whether that drug's doing them any good. So how can you improve on that? We need to develop tools that would enable us to define a kind of prediction, whether the patient is going to benefit or not from the specific treatment. At the moment in clinic, we have very little to address this need. The real issue is that cancer is a very heterogeneous process cancer changes over treatment. So basically, we need to have better models that we can manipulate in the lab and can tell us more about the way a single patient will respond to the treatment. And is that what you're now announcing? You've found a way of doing this better? Yes. So we can now take small biopsies from patients' tumours. We focused our attention on metastasis, so when the cancer has spread outside the primary organ, on bowel cancer and stomach cancer, because these are two deadly diseases. And taking these biopsies from these patients, we try to model what would happen in the clinic, in the lab. You make it sound simple, but I'm sure it's not. How do you, from a biopsy, work out what would happen if you were to treat that particular patient from which that biopsy was collected with a certain drug? So what we have done, we have taken biopsies from liver, lung, or other organs affected by metastasis, and we basically grew them as a 3D structure in the lab. And then we compare how this little tumor growing in my lab performs under treatment, responds to anti-cancer agents, as compared to the response observed in the patient. I suppose one 
advantage of this is you can take that biopsy and then divide it to grow lots of little mini identical cancers. So you can then experiment with lots of drugs in parallel and then work out what perhaps is the optimal drug or combination of drugs for that person. Absolutely. That was one of the key points of our study. We grow tumors that are so small, like 200 micrometers, so we can grow as many as we want in a few weeks. Time is also another important bottleneck when we want to provide information to patients in real time. And you're correct, we can screen a number of drugs. In our case, we screen 55 drugs. And so we can, in a couple of months or even less, provide an answer about the right treatment. And that will be, does this person's cancer respond to the drug we're giving? Is there evidence of side effects? Is the cancer showing signs of becoming resistant, etc.? So unfortunately, we cannot give information about the side effects, but what we do know from this test is that if the organoid, the little tumor in the lab, does not respond to the drug, in 100% of cases, the patient will not respond in the clinic. On the contrary, in 90% of cases where we see a response in the lab, we will see a response in the patient as well. So if you were to translate this paper in science this week, to the clinic, what sort of an impact would it immediately begin to make for patients? Well, first of all, we might be able to rule out drugs that wouldn't work. And then we might be able to make a quite accurate prediction of what is going to work. Of course, there are a number of other factors in the patient. The uh, microenvironment, so the tissues around the tumor, they also play a role in cancer, and also the metabolism of the drug. And at the moment, we are still working on these factors because we cannot account uh, for these factors in our system, in our current system. And what's next? For us, the next step is going to uh, actually allocate patients uh, to treatment based on what we see on our organoids. So we are developing protocols uh, so that we can collect biopsies from a patient who's coming to the Royal Marsden, test a number of drugs prospectively, and then allocate the patient to the specific trial based on the findings we observed in the lab. That's very encouraging news. Nicola Valeri there from the Royal Marsden, and that work has just appeared in the journal Science. Something which is increasingly cropping up in the news now is fake news, where social media accounts and websites are used to disseminate false information with the intention of deceiving people. But these fake sources are often quite well disguised and they can appear, at least to the uninitiated, to be, at face value, quite plausible. Now, researchers from Cambridge University are trying to fight back by developing an online game that teaches people some of the tricks that these fake news fraudsters are using, making them easier to spot. Izzy's been taking a look. Who doesn't love video games? You go through intense challenges, defeat the baddie and then reap the rewards. But how about a game that's the complete opposite to that, spreading mistrust, anger and fear? It's all about... Fake news. Fake news. The issue of fake news. It's all fake news. That's exactly what researchers at the University of Cambridge have created. The game, Bad News, puts the player as the editor-in-chief of a fake news website. But the study behind all this is to make the public more aware of the spread of disinformation. I met up with the university's Digital Video Game Society to give it a go and find out what they think about fake news. I, I decided to 
I'm Jerzy Good, and I study theoretical physics here at Cambridge. It's kind of hard to say how much I am personally affected by fake news, because when you see fake news, you don't know if it's fake or if it's real news. <laughs> oh, I'm picking a name for my website okay. uh, to post some fake news. So we have here Honest Truth Online. I'm not that credible yet, but I think I have to uh, really work on that. The aim is to build a Twitter empire, gain credibility and collect a series of scheming badges to become the ultimate manipulating mastermind. Dr. Sander van der Linden, the director of the Social Decision Making Lab in the Department of Psychology, explained how this is actually helping the player to become less susceptible to fake news. Well, it's really building off of earlier research where we tried to implement the idea of a vaccine against fake news. So the game is really um, about helping people spot, remember, and rehearse these tactics so that when people are exposed to them in the future, they're hopefully more resistant to them. So in, in very short, once you know the uh, the magic behind a trick, you know you won't be fooled by it again. So I always tell people, imagine... Um, walking a mile in the shoes of someone who's trying to deceive you, that's probably the best way to actually learn um, about how that might actually work and, and how to immunize, immunize yourself against these sort of tactics. Now let's get gaming. John Rosenbeek designed the game and took me through how it works. The gamer is the bad guy, and we've deliberately tried to make the player a little bit uncomfortable with these things. So sometimes the game gives you an option of like, well, hey, I'm not comfortable with this thing, and then the narrator basically tells you like, well... Too bad. Uh, if you want to be a, a disinformation tycoon, you're going to have to skirt a few ethical guidelines here and there. The game is basically choice-based. It's a very simple design, really. You you start playing the game and immediately you get to choose between various options, usually two. It leads you through a number of techniques that are commonly used in the production of disinformation. So these techniques are, for example, impersonation, that is impersonating a, a news website or impersonating an important personal organization, the misleading use of emotion, polarization, that means driving the political left and the political right further apart and exploiting that. Conspiracy theories make their way into the game as well, discrediting your opponents in various ways and trolling as well. You have to create Twitter bots that overthrow reliable sources, impersonate the likes of NATO and trick the public and stir up conspiracy theories to start a frenzy. But by doing so, when you come across those tactics online, you're more immune to them. This game is like a psychological vaccine. What we found essentially is that after playing the game, and this was done in a high school in the Netherlands, students thought fake news articles that we show them after the game were less reliable than students in the control group who didn't play the game. And so that sort of signaled some early evidence that the game could be effective. And then we decided to try to scale that at a much larger level. Sander and his team have asked participants to also take a survey, allowing them to evaluate how effective this game is to help determine questionable from real news. And this can open a whole new realm to educational gaming. What's next? The organisation that we work with in the Netherlands, DROG, or DROG, they are also developing educational programs that are much more explicitly aimed at teaching how disinformation actually works and how it spreads uh, in a much more comprehensive way. And we're hoping to implement these in schools, but also in other places where that might be useful. And we've requested funding to translate the game into different languages as well for countries where disinformation is a larger problem than it is here, for example, Ukraine. So we're thinking that Ukraine and Ukrainian students, for example, might benefit a lot from having these programs available.
So good news rather than fake news there. That was John Rosenbeek and before him Sander van der Linden. And the study describing those findings is due to appear anytime soon in the journal Risk Research. And if you want to have a go at the game yourself, you can find it at getbadnews.com. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Izzy Clark and Chris Smith. And still to come, the robot dog that's fighting off humans and how scientists are creating an artificial form of DNA. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme with any thoughts, comments or feedback, including questions for our monthly question and answer programmes, now's the chance. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook or it's at Naked Scientist on Twitter. And now it's time for this week's myth conception. And Lewis Thompson has been working out who or what could survive a nuclear holocaust. Cockroaches. These creepy crawlies are incredibly hardy creatures, able to survive what would kill most of us. You can squeeze a cockroach to a quarter of its normal height and it will crawl away unharmed. It's even said that if there was a nuclear war, cockroaches would be the only thing left alive. But is that actually true? Well, while cockroaches are able to tolerate high temperatures, nothing on Earth could survive the heat produced by a nuclear bomb exploding. The temperature within a 10 metre radius of the explosion becomes hotter than the surface of the sun. If the cockroaches were far enough away, they could survive the initial blast. But what about the nuclear fallout? When a nuclear bomb explodes, it releases ionising radiation and this kind of radiation contains enough energy to break apart chemical bonds, including those holding our DNA together. This means our cells stop working properly and can die, causing vomiting, haemorrhages, seizures, and, in many cases, death. So are cockroaches somehow immune to these problems? Well, it's true that cockroaches are able to tolerate much higher levels of radiation than we can. In a rather unpleasant experiment, the animals were subjected to high radiation levels for a month. Radiation is measured in a unit called grey. Ten grey would kill a human in a few days, but some of the cockroaches survived a month's exposure to 100 grey. So why are cockroaches better than humans when it comes to surviving radiation? Well, DNA is most vulnerable to radiation damage when it's dividing. This happens any time your body is making new cells, which in us is happening all the time. But cockroaches, like most insects, produce new cells at a much slower rate and so the proportion of cells in their body that will be vulnerable to radiation damage is much lower than in humans. But would this be enough to save them from nuclear war? The nuclear bomb which was dropped in Hiroshima in 1945 is estimated to have emitted between 4 and 12 gray of radiation in a 1 kilometer radius. So cockroaches would have been okay, but today's nuclear weapons are estimated to be several thousand times more deadly, so a global nuclear war today would almost certainly wipe out cockroaches. However, there are some organisms on Earth that might survive. Thermococcus gamma tolerans is a species of archaea, 
a group similar to bacteria, which lives in boiling hot hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor. It can tolerate 30,000 grey. That's over 3,000 times what humans can cope with. And one species of fungus has been found growing inside the melted reactor of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, finding a way to convert the radiation into energy for itself. So, while cockroaches have a better chance than us at surviving nuclear war, they probably wouldn't. The only things we're pretty sure would survive are a few species of archaea, bacteria and fungi. So let's hope humanity has the sense to not hit that big red button. Thanks, Lewis, for that cheery thought. Meanwhile, if you have some suspicious-sounding science you'd like scrutinised, send us an email at chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll take a look. Parkinson's disease is one of the commonest neurodegenerative diseases. It leads to difficulties with making movements and patients often also develop a characteristic tremor. In recent years, scientists have discovered that a protein naturally present in the brain, called alpha-synuclein, appears to build up in some nerve cells and kill them, causing the disease. Although why this happens, no one knew. Now we do, thanks to a study by Cambridge scientist Gabby Kaminsky. She's found that the protein normally helps nerve cells to squirt out the neurotransmitter chemicals that enable neurons to communicate. It does this by temporarily soaking up some calcium, which makes it sticky, enabling it to link up with other alpha-synuclein proteins and squeeze out the neurotransmitter from the nerve ending. But as we age, both the protein and calcium tend to loiter for longer inside those nerve cells, making them more likely to form the toxic aggregates that go on to cause Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, That means people suffering from Parkinson's disease uh, will have a neuronal loss in a specific region of the brain. This has been linked to a protein called alpha-synuclein. This protein will form protein aggregates in the brain, and these protein aggregates can then kill off individual neurons, and that is a problem. So the outstanding question then is, will... We know this protein is linked to the disease, but we don't know why it builds up and forms these aggregates that then poison the cells that are making it. Yes, that's correct. We know it's a relatively small protein and it's very abundant at the so-called nerve endings. That's where they squirt out chemicals that they use for neuron-to-neuron communication. You have little oily droplets that are called synaptic vesicles and where these chemicals that do the, the chemical communication between neurons are packed into It's been known that this protein alpha-synuclein can bind to these oily little droplets and thereby help the release of these chemicals to then lead to -to neuron-to-neuron communication. So that much was known, but what's the unknown? What have you been able to discover? We wanted to understand how, when there is a signal coming to the neuron that tells the neuron to release these chemical substances, we know that there is a lot of calcium coming inside the cell. And that is a very, very crucial moment because the calcium concentration that is normally kept extremely low inside the cell is suddenly rising to really high concentrations. And what we found was that there is a region within the alpha-synuclein protein that is highly negatively charged. That means the positive calcium ions can then 
bind to this negatively charged protein and then can really help the clustering of these oily droplets, these vesicles at the membrane and help the release of these chemicals. Is it fair to say then it's a little bit like me squeezing an orange? Basically the calcium comes into the nerve ending, it sees this negative chunk of alpha-synuclein protein, the calcium all sticks and clusters around the negative charges because the calcium's a bit positive and it's attracted to it. That What this then does is encourages the alpha-synuclein to, to squeeze those vesicles because it can get close to them and that encourages the, the nerve chemical to come out and that facilitates the passage of nerve information. Yes, exactly. And this is really an important mechanism. And we've now had the tools to study that because we have now access to what is called super-resolution microscopy. And we can really look what individual alpha-synuclein molecules are doing inside a nerve cell. And that is really exciting. Indeed. So we now have, thanks to you, a much clearer idea as to what this protein is doing, what its normal job is, why it's there. But why does that then turn into the thing that we started discussing, which is Parkinson's disease? What makes it then build up into these toxic aggregates that kill cells? Yeah, that's really an interesting point. The highest risk factor of developing Parkinson's disease is is age. And as we age, our metabolism is slowing down. So this protein turnover is significantly slowed down. And if we have too much of that protein, it has a tendency then to become very sticky. And if there are more proteins coming together, the chances are increased. Another problem is you might get a bit too much of the calcium coming in because the cell is too weak to get rid of all the calcium that is coming in. Critically though, can you stop it? That's a very interesting question and I think we're getting a step closer here because this calcium binding region on the alpha-synuclein protein becomes now a really interesting region for small molecule drugs to bind to them. We think that this would prevent uh, the aggregation. And the other important finding that we had, we could show that If we treat the cells with the calcium channel inhibitors, this might also uh, be beneficial to patients. So there is hope. Very exciting. So we might have a drug on the way eventually that can actually stop Parkinson's disease from progressing rather than just treating the symptoms. Gabby Kaminsky there, talking to me about the work that she has just published in Nature Communications. Well, now for something completely different. And this week, a team of engineers at Boston Dynamics in the US released a video of their robot dog, Spot Mini. But this isn't a toy. This is an intelligent robot that can open doors and isn't phased by human interference. So here to tell us more is our go-to tech guru and angel investor, Peter Cowley. Hi, Peter. Hello, Izzy. So what do Boston Dynamics do and what do we know about Spot Mini? Yeah, so Boston Dynamics was formed about 25 years ago and was privately owned until it was actually bought by Google about five years ago and then, and then actually sold to a Japanese VC firm. Spot Mini is probably the seventh or eighth that's been designed and built and put into the public domain, so we know about it. There may be lots going on in their labs. What it is is a four-legged thing that looks a bit like a dog, two-foot-high dog, and it's got an arm on it, and the arm can have various contraptions on it. It's about 80 centimetres high, weighs about 30 kilos. It's fully electric. Some of the earlier ones had little diesel engines on board, so they were quite noisy. It has 3D vision. It can carry about 14 kilos, and it's got 17 joints, and that should be compared with the 360-odd joints in the human body. 
body. So it'll run for about 90 minutes. And in this particular video that's on, online in various places, the first bit shows that the this Spot Mini being attacked, unfortunately, by <laughs> a human oh with a hockey stick that's trying to stop it opening a door. And eventually the human pulls this thing back with some lead in the back and pulls it away from the door. Finally, the human goes away. And so it moves towards the door and then it finds the handle and then rotates the handle, then puts a foot round and opens the door, which is obviously quite strongly spring-loaded. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah, so even with all of this interference, it keeps going, it opens this door. And I've seen the video. This robot dog is pretty robust. So... How does it work and how is it able to stay so focused on this task? Well, there's speculation online and it's not clear from the video and they've obviously been quite coy about it because it's commercially secret. There may well be and probably is somebody off camera that's controlling its move backwards and forwards. However, the actually opening of the door is probably not possible to do by the human. So it's probably either been taught or rather spookily has learned to open the door. Particularly impressive is the fact that it balances, it moves around. Because that must be something quite difficult to do, this idea of balance in general. But, I mean, why make these types of robots in the first place? Well, robots have come a long way since the word was invented in the 20s, early 20s, it's Czech word, robota, apparently. But they became in sort of mass production, well, mass, low mass production in the 60s. And I was involved in robots in the 80s. But these were stationary. The things you see on the television where they're actually doing something, say, on a car production line where it's painting or they're tightening a bolt up or putting a windscreen in. Move on forward to the, the ones that are non-stationary. And in fact, autonomous vehicles are robots. You know, they're on a, on a, on a road. It's quite easy to move around. What Boston Dynamics has done is to produce what look like animals and humans which can cope with unusual terrains. So, of course, and that is really different. If you, there's, a, there's a great video of one, a two-legged one, walking through a slippery, snowy forest, slipping around the place and picking itself up. So the reason behind this is to understand what it's like to cope with non-standard surfaces, really, and then, of course, also in, indoors. So these can cover a lot of different terrains, but what is the future of these robots? That's interesting. That's an interesting question because the speciality of these robots, assuming one takes it beyond just being a science experiment, i.e., you know, it actually gets into volume manufacturers, is for situations where one needs the device, to, as we said, to cover terrains which are non-flat, non-indoors non in, or on roads, etc. Therefore, it's in a situation where probably a human being is with the robot or the robot is replacing the human being. So clearly in that situation, military comes up, doesn't it? And there are some pretty worrying numbers out there on the internet that a good proportion of, say, the American armed forces will be robots in time. You know, there's all kinds of science fiction connotations there, etc. There will be occasions where, say one is decommissioning a nuclear plant or something, where a robot of this form that's having to walk through some sort of environment which is radioactive or, or difficult, you could use it in that situation. So there would definitely be occasions where robots need to cover ground which is not easy to do just with wheels. So, yeah, the applications will be huge, but at the moment I'm not quite sure what they are. Peter, thank you very much. That's Peter Cowley, who's an angel investor. And if you would like to follow up on any of the stories that you've heard us discussing this week, and in fact, any of the previous stories in previous programmes, all of the programmes I think we've ever made, including all the transcripts and the references, can be found on our website. That's Naked Scientists. Follow the links to where it says podcasts. 
The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Izzy Clark. And now it's time to join Georgia Mills for the subject of xenobiology. Here on The Naked Scientist, we cover new developments all the time, from robotics to pharmaceuticals. But this week, we're exploring a whole new field of research, one you've probably never heard of before. It's called xenobiology. That's spelt with an X. And it might just change the world. But what the heck is it? Luckily for me, the world experts in this field gathered together for a meeting at University College London alongside experts in risk, philosophy and business. Their aim? To discuss where this new technology could lead and work out what the risks might be. And my aim was to find out just what it was and what it might mean for all of us. The story of xenobiology starts in the 70s and 80s with the emergence of a technology we all know very well today – and that's genetic modification. So a genetically modified organism is perhaps one that contains DNA uh, that didn't belong in the organism to begin with. It might have been taken from something else or perhaps a set of genes from different organisms have been put together to create a pathway to manufacture a specific product. Dr Brenda Parker is a lecturer in the Department of Biochemical Engineering at University College London. So for example... There's an, uh, a lovely paper about making bioplastics in microalgae. Uh, so they took the genes from another organism that happens to make this bioplastic and they inserted that into the microalgae so it began to make the bioplastic um, inside the cells. So that would be an example of a genetically modified organism. DNA is the code inside all living things. It's like an instruction manual that makes you you and me me. And because it's written in this universal biological language, if I take an instruction from one thing and put it inside another, you can sometimes, if you've done it right, give one organism a trait from another. And when it comes to applications, the sky is the limit. From the frivolous, you can give a cat genes from a jellyfish to make it glow in the dark, to the potentially famine ending, could you tweak the genes of rice so it can survive droughts? Genetic engineering could solve some pretty dramatic problems, which is why scientists like Brenda are so interested in it. Uh, so my background is uh, primarily on microalgae. That's what I work on at the moment. And GMOs has been something that's been emerging for us in the last few years as more and more kind of technologies come online for um, genetic manipulation of microalgae. Specifically, I've been working on uh, vaccines and novel antimicrobials, so engineering algae to be able to produce these products. And I think sort of long term, one of the goals has always been for this industry to try and harness the power of photosynthetic organisms to make kind of commodity products. So that would be, for example, something like biofuels. Now, yields at present are very low. It's not economically viable. So a lot of attention and a lot of effort has been put into strategies to try and boost productivity or um, increase yields. And some of these will certainly fall under the category of genetically modified organisms. Algae that can grow vaccines, drugs, produce high yields of renewable fuel. If we can crack it, sounds almost too good to be true. But genetic modification is not exactly the most popular kid in the technological playground. A recent survey found that 64% of Americans were opposed to GM foods and YouGov reported that 4 out of 10 of us in the UK felt negatively about them. Among the concerns that have been raised is this idea of contamination. 
A genetically modified crop could escape, interbreed or cross-pollinate with the natural populations. There's even a funky trick some organisms can do where they nick DNA from something else and use it themselves. This is called horizontal gene transfer. In this scenario, once the horse has bolted, there's not much you can do. But finding out how likely this scenario is, or even if it would be a problem in the first place, is a little tricky. The issue really is about the uncertainty about cultivating these organisms at scale, the impact they might have if they were to get out into the environment, and really trying to ascertain if there's a risk to ecosystems, perhaps, and really trying to trying to nail down exactly what might be the impact on the surrounding environment, because um, it's really not certain at the moment. How do you do that? How do you work out what the risk is and what might happen? Uh, so that's a really interesting question. So there has been a really lovely piece of research published um, just last month uh, from a group in San Diego where they had cultivated um, algae, which had been, uh, one of strains had been um, augmented with GFP, which is a fluorescent uh, protein, and another had been modified to increase its fatty acid profile. So as if we were kind of growing it for biofuels. Uh, And what they did was they set up different nutrient traps around the site of cultivation and they measured how much of the GM uh, algae they could detect. So these traps were full of kind of the nutrients that algae enjoy uh, growing on. And really what they found at the end of the experiment is while they could detect the GMOs um, in certain places, depending on the prevailing wind, the actual natural populations vastly exceeded uh, the GMOs. So while they were present, they certainly didn't excel or they didn't um, outcompete what was already in the natural environment. And are these studies quite hard to do in general? Incredibly difficult to do. So uh, this study it had been granted permission from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the US. So this is really the first of its kind, um, as far as I know. In Europe, this would be a, an incredibly difficult study to do just because getting a license for uncontained release of GMOs would be very hard. So the idea is that the people are worried about the risks. So therefore, it's almost impossible to do an experiment that would look at what the risks actually are. Yes, <laughs> sort of the long. It is a little bit of a catch twenty two. It, it's something that we have uh, on another European project that I worked on recently, the Analgi project that we did look at. You know, kind of what might be the um, restrictions in terms of conducting these kind of trials. I think Europe is very unified in terms of its approach to, um, you know, uncontained release of GMOs. However, I suppose. As with all of these things, it may well be another country that decides to lead on this first. And certainly the study that's been done in the US has been quite pioneering in the way that it's approached it. And perhaps that will build confidence to let other people try. But in the meantime, yes, it's it's incredibly prohibitive. We have to literally culture these organisms in the way that we would culture any other genetically modified organism. So you have a catch-22. Editing biology opens up worlds of opportunity but there's the chance it will be absorbed into the natural world. And this very concern makes it hard to run tests to establish how likely this is. Well, what if you had a system that used the rules of biology, but was completely separate to it? This is where xenobiology might have something different to add. Xenobiology is a combination of two words, biology and xeno, and xeno comes from from the Greek language and means foreigner or stranger. So it means that there's a form of biology that is strange or unknown to the biology that we know. So it's a kind of a new type of biology that is going to be invented in the laboratories. Dr. Marcus Schmidt is the founder of the company Biofaction in Vienna. 
one of the applications I'm, I'm interested in is, is uh, increasing or improving biocontainment. So if you take an example from, from the software, from the computer world, you have uh, Microsoft or Apple or a Linux operating systems and there are viruses around or ransomware or whatever, malicious software that can affect your computer and you have to constantly update your computer. But if you write um, a virus, for example, for a Microsoft system, it's supposedly not going to affect a Macintosh or a Linux system, okay? So they are separated because they are made up in a different way. If you look at biology and, and living systems, they are practically all of them have the same operating system in the way that they use the same chemistry and they use the same genetic code. So that means that viruses are from the natural world can also easily evolve and, and affect all kinds of different uh, systems. But if you have a different operating system, then you would be spared from this kind of threat or evolution. And Cinebiology can, in principle, come up with a solution to isolate these new genetic models from the living world so that they would not do any harm to the environment. And this is kind of a, one of the major applications that, that seem to be of interest to any kind of other application that could come out of it. Okay, so you, there's this idea that because they're such different codes in xenobiology that it wouldn't be able to integrate with all of our natural living things today and it wouldn't have this chance to either be eaten by something or, or sort of transfer the information across which could have sort of runaway unintended consequences. Yeah, exactly. So you can see that our, our current living system, they're, they're quite similar on a, on a chemical basis. Plant looks very different from an animal or bacteria, but on a chemical level, they're quite similar. So if you you're able to make a different chemical system that is not too different from biology, except that it cannot interact or has a different language, so to say, you can make a different island and isolate these uh, new forms of life from the existing forms of life. That means that they would not be able to interact or, or exchange genetic information. I mean, they could change, could interact on, our, on the level of using resources and so that, that, that's true, but not on our information level. So this is what is called a genetic firewall, that there is no giving and receiving information between these two islands. And making such an island is, is one of the goals when it comes to biocontainment. So, like if you tore the ends off a jigsaw piece, it wouldn't fit into the puzzle. Xenobiology wouldn't be able to integrate with the rest of nature. In the field, they call this idea of being mutually exclusive orthogonality. But this idea of increasing containment, it isn't the only reason for wanting to engineer biology 2.0. There are different possibilities to, let's say, materialise life forms. So instead of having... DNA that is a normal storage molecule for genetic information, you could use different chemicals to store information. But for some reason, nature just uses one type of molecule. And it's not quite clear why this is just this one molecule. Was it a kind of a frozen accident in the past and is maintained over time? Or is there are all the other chemical possibilities uh, not as good for, for survival? And so in the laboratories now, they're trying to make diverse types of this to see if others have different features that could be of interest. So changing the chemistry of the basic uh, living uh, molecules that make up life is one of the goals of xenobiology. The other one is to change kind of the semantics, the, the way that information is processed in the cell. So normally we have in the cell the, um, the genetic information that is encoded in DNA, which is then translated into an amino acid alphabet and this translation is what is called the genetic code. So to interpret 
and to understand what is written in the genetic uh, information, you need this genetic code. But there are so many possible genetic codes, and nature only uses a very, a very small number of that. So um, it's interesting to find out what other possible codes could be realized to and and with these two examples um, there there is a great chance to come up with some new applications or some new um, metabolic pathways to solve environmental problems or industrial problems and biological problems that cannot be solved with existing biological systems so there is one belief uh, in the in the in the beauty of of nature and this belief says that nature has tried all the different possibilities out and you know, they came out in the end with the best possible solutions. It's the belief that nature is kind of um, the ultimate wisdom. It's kind of their, uh, it, there, there's a supreme mechanism that that's spits out the best possible solution. And so there, there's an heretic movement in, in biology that says maybe this is not the case. Maybe we can find, maybe humans can find other solutions that are even, um, that have, have in some circumstances, better, better features and better characteristics. And that, that is what xenobiology tries to do. So in theory, xenobiology would expand the possibilities of what we can engineer and answer some fundamental questions along the way, plus reducing the risk of contamination. We'll take a closer look at those risks later, but first, how does this actually work in practice? Well, at the moment, it doesn't. It's a small field in its infancy, but there are plenty of scientists in labs across the world looking at different ways you can make biology strange. And Vita Pinheiro is one of them. He's a scientist at University College London and the one who organised this conference. His way of making things orthogonal, that is, mutually exclusive to the rest of biology, is by looking at the code for life itself. All life on Earth has always depended on DNA and RNA, which is very limiting. So our plan has been always to, can we change that chemistry? Can we create a genetic material that is not DNA, that is not RNA? And of course, once you have established that, can you then bring it into biology? So can you have an informational system outside biology, but that we have to engineer all the bridges? Okay, so you're making a form of something that's like DNA, but isn't. So how, how do you do that? The big advance is really coming from the chemists, because they're the creative ones. They can come up with how to modify the nuclear base, how to modify the sugar in DNA, or even how to modify kind of the backbone, the phosphate in DNA. When I think of DNA, I immediately picture the famous double helix. But each step on that twisted ladder is what's known as a base, and it's made of three parts, a nucleotide, a sugar, and a phosphate. They have many ideas. Chemically is is a interesting area to explore. But if you want to go into biology, that's not enough. You need the next step. So you need to make sure that that chemistry is not toxic. You need to make sure that that chemistry is not used naturally by the enzymes that would normally replicate DNA. And if those uh, sort of initial statements are a sound, you can start now moving the biological system to a user. Any modification in any of the chemical parts of DNA, uh, we give it a name of XNA, so xenobiotic nucleic acid. Okay, so there are these three components of DNA. There's the base, there's the sugar, and there's a phosphate combined. That's um, one building brick of DNA. Yes. And then 
what you're doing is taking one of those components and putting in something else, a different kind of chemistry, which does a similar job and then hoping that that will work the same way as DNA, but it's not made of it. Yeah, because even small changes in the chemistry uh, result in molecules that don't have the, so this classic uh, helical form that DNA has. It has a distorted version. Um, and ultimately, over the course of six years, we've managed to show that for multiple of these exonase, you can have a polymerase, so this is the enzyme that replicates the DNA, um, but working with exonase. So they can synthesize an exonase. Uh, I think we now have demonstrated about 10 of those. They can take the XNA and bring back that information to DNA. These are all outside the cell in a test tube. But of course, having demonstrated that, now the next step is, can we bring a step closer to biology? And that would be going in the cell because the main, one of the things DNA does is it is used to build the bits of a cell and eventually all the way up into an organism. Could XNA be used to build new organisms. So uh, to some extent, that's the hope. That That's kind of where one of the applications would emerge from XNA. Uh, but of course, that itself is a big challenge to bring it into a cell because you have to solve how to deliver the kind of the chemical precursors into the cell. You have to make sure that the cell can't use it and any enzyme you engineer can't use the natural blocks. What are the possible uses of XNA? So some uses kind of don't, don't need to go into biology uh, because from the moment you have a, a chemistry that is resistant to, to biology itself, that ha- opens up a series of applications. So for instance, um, nucleic acids, you can, ingen- you can evolve them to become natural binders. So it, it, they become single molecules of nucleic acid, short, that can fold upon themselves and almost work like an antibody. So they have very tight, specific binding to whatever you've engineered it to. However, if you think, uh, kind of, they can be good diagnostics, uh, but they don't usually make good therapeutics. So you can't use them like an antibody drug. Primarily because biology has evolved to exclude biology. So our bodies are designed to destroy any DNA that's outside the cell. So DNA doesn't make a good drug delivery tool because the body will recognise it and destroy it. But XNA can slip past the defences, taking the drug where it needs to go, a kind of pharmaceutical invisibility cloak. So that's in a test tube. If you want to bring XNA into biology, you have different applications. So you have, of course, the kind of the blue sky, the big question. Can you make life with a different, with a different molecule? How far along is this? I mean, is this something we'll see in the next 10 years, 20 years, 100? What's the sort of time scale of when you think this might come off? With XNA, I think we probably look in the next decade to have a, a kind of proof of principle in a cell that an XNA is viable. But once that system is achieved, progress towards a, a sort of an organism would be very fast. So in a way, is the... We're trying to emulate biology. It's a lousy inventor. But once we can invent something, then it's easy to optimise. Vita Pinheiro, here on The Naked Scientists. XNA is coming our way then, and its uses could be broad from sneaking drugs into the body to engineering an entirely new type of life. 
which sounds, let's be honest, a bit scary. So let's return to the risks. The idea is that xenobiology would be easier to contain with this biological firewall. But how do we work out what the chances of something getting out actually are, and then if it did, what the consequences would actually be? Would a breach be unnoticed and unremarkable, or wipe everyone out? Well, luckily for all of us, there's someone who spends his time thinking about these kinds of things. Hi, I'm Piers Millett. I am a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford. Is the subject of xenobiology something considered there? It certainly is. We we look at a variety of different, very low probability, very high consequence types of risks. And so we have been doing some thinking both on the risks and the potential benefits of things like xenobiology, where we have a, a set of science that is not necessarily easily based upon existing risk structures or existing data sets on risks, where we need to figure out um, where, what some of those benefits are and what some of the risks are. And certainly on the, on the risk side, uh, there are questions about what the potential is to accidentally or deliberately create something that could outcompete natural resources or indeed have some massive impact on the environment, um, no matter how low probability that actually is. Okay, so how do you go about sort of discussing something that's never happened and you don't really know how it would happen and what the odds are, like that kind of thing? How do you, how do you even start? So some of the, the basis here is to, to build around the concept that there are probably some consequences that are so large that the likelihood of them happening almost becomes irrelevant. And so if we think about technologies that could actually impact human development over centuries or even over millennia in the future, the value of human life as we move forward has to be offset against the risk that we face now. So that something that could dramatically decrease the chances of civilization reaching its full potential or indeed lead to uh, the complete wiping out of humanity so we never see all of those future lives that we would have needs to be offset against more likely but lower consequence risks that we have to deal with at the moment. So how does xenobiology rank in, I don't know, the list of (laughs) the top 10 threats? Is it considered by your scales like a, a bigger or smaller thing to consider? It's a very new field, so it's something it's something that we're looking at, something that we're thinking about, and I don't think it's currently perhaps one of those top risks. And, and that really feeds nicely into the way that it may actually help to manage other risks that we've been thinking about. So one element of xenobiology that's discussed a lot is whether it could be used for some sort of biocontainment strategy that would provide us with safer ways to explore the use of other advanced biotechnologies, and therefore whether it could actually be a positive tool as we move forward and try and reach those sorts of futures that we're talking about. Much of the focus is on dealing with risks and avoiding the very worst outcomes to the future of humanity. Uh, That necessitates both trying to avoid certain futures and trying to create more positive futures. And In reality, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we move the needle on those very, very, very low probability but very, very high consequence risks just a little bit because it turns out when you're talking about the entire future of humanity, anything you can do to reduce the risk just a tiny bit can have a massive impact when you look over the future. So xenobiology, is a, a, I guess it's a funny one because it, it, there are these risks involved, but at the same time, it could massively reduce the impacts of something we think is very likely to happen, like climate change or something like that. So it's sort of in this strange place. What conversations do you have you say reducing the risk. How, how would you do that for something like xenobiology? It's remarkably important the ability and the willingness of a community, a scientific technical community, to engage in the broader 
discussions about how their work fits into a societal context. And I think one of the nice things about the, the meeting we've been at here today, the willingness of the xenobiology community to consider the broader implications of their work rather than just the highly technical nature. And I think that's not an interaction we see in many areas of science and one that would really benefit from, from being replicated and, and thoroughly embraced more broadly, I think, as we try and figure out how science fits into society over the coming decades and, and years to come. Piers Millet there, thinking about the risks. But according to Victor de Lorenzo from the National Centre of Biotechnology Madrid, the biggest risk is to not do anything at all. I think that we're facing a number of major environmental global problems and there's a hope that perhaps synthetic biology and these heavily engineered organisms can help to tackle these problems and I argue that we should not be distracted on um, analysing or predicting possible risks or entering into uh, governance uh, before having data simply because uh, we don't have enough time to really be distracted with these um, aspects and the priority, in my opinion, is to see whether we can really produce agents that can help us to solve the problems. So should we gather as much data as possible first, then assess the risks later? But what makes Victor so confident we shouldn't worry about something escaping? Well, you cannot say it will not happen at 100% security or safety or predictability. But what we can say is that after nearly 40 years of many laboratories working on genetic engineering... There's not one single case reported in the literature in which release, either accidental or deliberate, of this type of recombinant organisms have created any detectable problem. That doesn't mean, of course, that it may not happen in the future, but for the time being, I would be in the safe side and kind of advocate that uh, we should not be over-concerned because the data so far is very, I mean, give us uh, the reasons to be optimistic. What about uh, intentional harm like bioterrorism? Well, I think that if you want to be a bioterrorist, you have plenty of natural microbes and, and natural pathogens that are far worse than the imagination of any able synthetic biology can entertain. That's one thing. And the other thing is that we still don't know enough of how pathogenesis works, and it will be very difficult and, and very, uh, say, intricate thinking of improving, say, the, the natural mechanisms of virulence that are out there. And finally, I think that the only laboratories that could do something connected to that are in super, super advanced countries. And I don't think that they are now in the position to develop these type of approaches. So while contamination is a risk, Victor thinks this has actually happened a few times before. And in general, the natural world hasn't blinked an eye. In terms of bioterrorism, we're not close to being able to engineer something that could be this effective. And the natural world has kindly come up with a lot of deadly options already. Whether this has you convinced or not, these kinds of questions of risk and responsibility aren't unique to xenobiology. Every time there is a, a really a disruptive technology, you have a list of questions that historically have been raised when the technology has been exposed to the wider public. So is the technology safe? Also, there's this question of who owns the intellectual property. And it's interesting because in the times of the invention of anesthetics, there, was, there were some discussions between uh, French groups and American groups of who should really hold the patent of this, uh, this anesthetics. But also there's these moral aspects. Are we doing something wrong? Are we doing something against, the nat against nature? Are we playing God? That sort of thing. 
And these discussions were very intense in the 19th century, but now everyone considers that uh, anesthetics is fantastic and is in fact one of the big advances in medicine. So my hope and my um, expectation is that this discussion that we have today will develop into a general acceptance that synthetic bio is just great and is a brand new technology that will allow us to solve problems that we could not solve before. So it's still early days in the field yet, and it remains to be seen how people will respond to the technology, and even if it will be able to deliver on its promises. Will it be another anaesthetic, greeted first with suspicion, but then with acceptance, even dependence? Will it be seen as the way to save the planet from catastrophe? Or will it be seen as a dangerous experiment, which could do more harm than good? Well, I'll give Victor the last word. The world is divided between pessimists and optimists. And I belong to the optimist um, say community. And I believe that science and technology, and in particular uh, synthetic biology and all these uh, new approaches to biological systems, will be our best allies to uh, make sure that we uh, hand over um, our planet uh, to the next generations in good shape. Thank you to Victor De Lorenzo and all the other guests on the programme this week, Vita Pinheiro, Piers Millet, Brenda Parker and Marcus Schmidt. And I think it's fair to say we're living in a very interesting and a very exciting time. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills for putting that programme together. And do join us on the next episode when we'll be discussing the illegal wildlife trade and how science can come to the rescue. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.